0: Hey, folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCRIT Podcast. Today on the podcast, a new recurring segment called MCRIT Shadowboxing. And the idea is uh, Gary Klein, you know, of the Naturalistic Decision-Making School, uh, he came on the podcast, I think it was episode 179, he talked about one of the most effective techniques he has discovered to actually Prompt people to gain tacit knowledge and really hone your intuition. And it was called shadow boxing. And the idea was you'd take an expert in the field and you'd present them a scenario or a case, in the case of medicine, and you would have them uh, making the decisions they would make in everyday life. Now, the key. The, the magic to this is uh, at certain segments in the presentation, you would pause and let the audience decide what they would do, what they think is going on, their diagnosis, their treatment plan before letting the expert continue. And so you're actually, you know, uh, that's where the shadow boxing comes in. You're you're training your mind without a real opponent to uh, g- gain the skills you want uh, before you get a really sick patient in front of you. So we're going to try that as a recurring feature on Amcrit, and this is going to be free uh, for residents. Uh, But for learners of any ilk, uh, but but specifically, I wanted to have some free content for the residents in case uh, they can't join or don't want to join that will be uh, continuous throughout the year. And I, I think this is like one of the most effective ways to really relay information to people that are still in the learning stage, which could be someone 10 years into their attending ship. Dumb Hood, I don't know, um, intending life, and uh, so I, I hope you like it, and uh, we will continue to refine it. Now, I am going to be partnered up on this with my, some of my former fellows. This month is going to be uh, Ryan Barnacle. He'll he'll be a regular character on this series, and I'm going to try to get some of my other buddies on here, and uh, maybe we'll have some special guests uh, on various episodes. We'll see how it goes. Now. Uh, How does it work? At various points in the episode, you will hear this sound. Let's hear that again. And that's your cue to pause, as long as you're not driving and not going to kill yourself by hitting a button, and think about whatever I ask you to think about at that moment, and then restart and hear how it went uh, in the actual discussion. Now, if you're a resident and you want to participate in this, you have a case And we're really looking for bread and butter here. Now, we'll take crazy cases every now and then, but this is not a CPC competition. This is not trying to stump the experts. The idea of this is bread and butter, uh, how people in the field would handle it. So if you have a case you think would be good and you just want to participate because you think it would be fun, then uh, you should come on board. And so the two voices you'll hear in this episode are Ryan Barnacle, one of my former RESUS fellows at Stony Brook, and he's now faculty at Yale. He has a particular interest in critical care echo as well as resuscitation education. And then the resident presenter for this month is Cheyenne Lee, and he has an interest in addiction medicine, EMS, and uh, he has a great case for us. Now, just before we start, if you are not already an MCRIT member, this is probably the last day you could join in 2021 because uh, we're about to hit the new year and so if you're an attending and you have a budget or you're a uh, nurse or nurse practitioner pa etc consider joining Uh, i i think it will markedly improve your ability to take care of critically ill and super sick patients and it will keep you up to date you will understand the things that are changing in the world of resuscitation So if you haven't already joined, come on over to mcrit.org slash join and uh, come on board the team. Uh, I think if you like this episode, you'll like all things MCRIT if you are not familiar with the podcast in the past. And uh, I hope to see you soon in the members only section.
1: And so why don't we get right into it? Yeah, so so I'm working a shift and we get a medical alert that we're receiving a patient in one of our resuscitation rooms. And we go in and it seems like it's a 71-year-old gentleman who is coming as a transfer from one of our freestanding uh, emergency department and it sounded like the patient was transferred for further evaluation and management of very abnormal appearing vitals. So at the other 80, he, he had presented with hypoxia with SpO2 in like 80s, hypotensive to systolic 80%, quite tachypneic with respiratory rate ranging in like 40s and 60s. Also like a cardiac with 120s and 140s. As EMS is like transferring him, he is on non-rebreather and stands like on the monitor. EMS tells us that he's on 15 liters and his oxygen saturation is like 100%. Did they Um, do anything?
2: To clarify, he he was on 100% FIO2, but his sats were still in the 80s. So, yeah, just for context for the listeners and to put you in the moment here, we commonly transfer sick patients from our freestanding ED, and we normally speak to the on-duty critical care attending before we send them. Unfortunately, Cheyenne and I were in another resuscitation when that phone call happened. So we didn't actually get a handoff, and this patient sort of rolled in without us knowing that they were coming.
0: Cool. That makes more sense.
2: Um, And... We don't, at this freestanding ED, there's really no kind of long-term capability to critically care for a patient. Even intubating a patient is a big deal because there's vent, vent issues there. So that's why they rolled in. So we'll pause the patient's hypotensive, hypoxic, and uh, rolling into the recess room.
0: Okay. So what does he, or she, actually, what are, is it a he or she? It's a he. Okay. So what does he look like? as they're rolling him in.
1: Yes, yeah, so he is. he's a non-rebreather. He is working to breathe and using all, if I remember correctly, and Dr. Barney could correct me. He's working to breathe. He's using all accessory muscle, but he appears, um, like, mentally, he appears with it. And he's able to try to communicate through us with the non-rebreather, able to answer some questions with yes or no, and then we transfer him. It, it, if I remember correctly, it seemed like he's, like, he appeared a little pale, a little dusky, but still not not extremely, like, not in, like, extremis.
0: All right, take a few seconds, gather your thoughts about what you think so far, what you're already planning to do, and then we'll go through a whole bunch of discussion. A few things. This is a big argument in the EMS world, and Cheyenne, you may weigh in on this point, but people who are in very high-functioning systems, especially those who have docs in the field should happen at this point, is everyone should just shut up and stop everything they're doing and listen to the EMS sign out before any actions are taken. And maybe this works when you have a EMS physician who has stabilized the patient entirely. This has never been my stance on how things should go. I prefer simultaneous listening and action. Now the, they really don't like this from the perspective of A, the, they feel that the EMS, they're not, not given their due time to really give the sign out in a safe and clean fashion, but this patient could die at any minute. so I. I just don't buy it. What I prefer to do is have the team leader listening and have the team doing their stuff. And I actually will ask EMS to transfer the patient to the stretcher before they give their sign out because that allows the swarm to start the stabilization procedure while then I could give my full attention as the team leader or if we assign a resident as the team leader for them to give their full attention. So actually what I would do in this case is I'd ask them to bring the patient onto the stretcher and then I want to get a story at the same time my team is getting the patient stabilized. So which one should we do first? The story or the steps of stabilization? And just
2: to follow it up, that's exactly what we did. We had the swarm help the EMTs move the patient and I took the story kind of one-on-one with the paramedic. And so we can do we the story was limited so we started action before the story but i was curious to have a specific question for you when someone is obviously critically ill what is the essential
0: information you want from me all right what information do you want This is a transfer, so it's a little different than our standard de novo comes from the field. So I want to know everything. I want to know how the patient presented. I want to know what the hell they did for him over there. I want to know all his medical history, etc. I wouldn't want a curtailed vision of it because once EMS leaves, that's it. They're gone. So no matter how critical the patient is, even cardiac arrest, you can't get more critical than that. I want a full story. I don't want a curtailed story. So I'm going to ask them everything. Now, there is a mnemonic that ideally EMS is either duplicating or actually using for cards in their pocket so it's the the demist handoff protocol I actually prefer the demist pad recommended by the bad EM folks I'm not going to go through the entire thing what you want to do is just go to the show notes for this episode and you can see the links to an amazing bad EM post that goes through the entirety of it you really, in an ideal world, if you have a centralized EMS, will have this stuff in a standard fashion. And my buddy, Simon Carley, in their recess rooms, actually has it up on the wall, this mnemonic. And they, if they have an inexperienced crew and they start stumbling through the story, will actually point and say, do me a favor, just go through each of these steps and relay the story. All they
1: right. were
2: also, during the presentation, they were very focused on the fact that the patient's end title was low and only 11 and they kept repeating that, even though the patient was alert and talking. Is there any clinical significance to that information?
0: Yeah, there's oh. an enormous clinical significance. I mean, yeah, so a- I was
2: hoping you'd walk us through that.
0: Okay, for you, what is the clinical significance of this piece of information? It points to something that already, when the story uh, was relayed and based on the way the patient's looking, makes me very scared. So. When you have a hypoxemic patient, which this patient clearly is 80% on 100% FiO2, and hypotension, that is a deadly combination. That is a synergistic combination. Because what happens with these patients is that the hypoxemia is almost certainly caused by some degree of shunt physiology, because the patient has high FiO2 and still is hypoxemic, meaning you've eliminated all the other sources, really, of hypoxemia. If they're on high FIO2, things like VQ mismatch, taking uh, small shallow respirations, all of them are eliminated. So the patient has shunt physiology, which means they're sending their venous side directly into their arterial. And if they're hypotensive as well, usually that's going to be indicative of poor cardiac output. And that means each of those hemoglobin is going to have more than one oxygen molecule stripped off it. So instead of a venous sat of 70, 75%, the venous sat may be 50%, which means the admixture that's actually going through the shunt is super low. If this patient drops their cardiac output any further, it's not a little tick down on their pulse ox. They could go plummet on their pulse ox and drop dead in front of you. What the end tidal CO2 of 11 in a patient who's breathing tells you is not a respiratory issue tells you they are completely malperfusing their lungs and therefore don't have circulation to actually get CO2 to the lungs and therefore blow it out into the patient's end tidal CO2 monitor. So when you have a patient who is already hypotensive with an end tidal CO2 like that, what you should be petrified is sudden cardiac collapse from poor cardiac output. When you add in the synergistic hypoxemia, it's super dangerous. All right, what immediate step would you take to stabilize this patient at this point? And at this stage of the game, even without getting my own blood pressure, I would drawing up and administering a push dose inopressor, specifically epinephrine. We're right out of place, run the way I would, we'd already have it drawn up, but if not, I would actually have made right now, push dose epinephrine and actually administer it to this patient, even if their BP was okay. Because what this is telling me based on that entitled CO2 is this patient is malperfusing and it's probably contributing to their hypoxemia. You get some additional indications of that by, can the pulse ox pick up with good waveform or not? And how do their hands feel? If their hands are ice cold, it's, it's a confirmed thing. Their cardiac output is screwed and you're in a really dangerous situation right now.
2: So their hands were cold and dusky and their legs were cold. You wanna keep going with some of the questions?
0: yeah yeah so should we so we're getting the story so do you want to give me the story or should we talk the initial steps of stabilization because we already alluded to some of them yeah i think
2: probably the initial steps
0: okay because we yeah so we mentioned one of them which is i would be giving this patient push dose epinephrine if i have time Based on my gestalt, can he wait five seconds? Maybe I'll get one more repeat BP on our own machine. But if not, then I'll just empirically give him 10 micrograms of epinephrine without even thinking about it. That's, no matter what the situation is, that's really never gonna hurt anything, but it could be dramatic in terms of its improvement on the patient. At the same time, I'm gonna ask one of our nurses to start mixing up a norepinephrine drip. If we had advanced notification of this, we'd already have that made and ready for us because is cheap and not having it in time is really expensive in terms of patient morbidity and mortality. So let's get that mixed up. We'll obviously put the patient on our own high FiO2. I'd love to continue the end tidal CO2 monitoring if the EMS tubing is compatible with our end system. If you don't have an entidal system, then you're screwed in terms of good patient care because you cannot have a recess bay without a continuous waveform end CO2. Now, I would ask someone if we have enough people, if this is not a single doc shop, to go grab the ultrasound machine because that rush exam on this patient's gonna have a dramatic um, benefit for early diagnosis. And then we should be prepping for intubation at this point, which means asking another nurse or the same nurses that's going to grab the norepinephrine to grab us intubation meds and then getting our setup for uh, if we have to do a crash tube, ready to go. Now in an ideal world, you already have everything set up in your resource base such that you don't need to do anything. But if you don't, now's the time to get.
1: I feel e- Evento Villela. We were just told five. the patch was like five minutes and we were getting ready in the room, but we had we had decent nursing support and we have a good team. I was a senior resident. We had two junior residents. Dr. Barnico was there and we had, I think, three or four nurses, which is good enough with the nursing show. And yeah, that, that was our plan. Like simultaneously, while we were trying to get the EMS report and everyone was silent, trying to get as much as we could get from the EMS, we were getting the patient on our stretcher, getting the patient hooked up to our monitors. Gave EMS some time to give us a report, but it sounded like because they were not bringing the patient from the scene. They were transferring from one hospital to another. They also had limited information from what was provided to them from the other hospital. And obviously, because the patient was so safe, they really wanted to get the patient moved to our mothership as, as quickly as possible.
0: I'll just say here as a tip, it is absolutely essential to sign someone on the team to do a complete chart biopsy and just really dissect what has taken place. Um, And oftentimes this gets delayed for an hour and then you miss crucial information. So you gotta read every friggin' page, even though it's horrible and annoying, especially with the way EMRs print out charts, but you gotta do it.
1: So he arrived and his initial vital sense with us, he stole, like once we moved him to our stretcher, we were not able to get a good O2 set right away on him. EMS was taller that he was still in 80s. His MAP is like 59, Blood pressure is still very soft, 88 by 45, with heart rate of 147. And he's still breathing um, at that rate. But again, he's like able to speak. He appears alert. He is using his most, um, accessory muscles to breathe. And he's like uh, got cool extremities. And one of our junior residents listened to the long sound like bi- bilateral, bilateral rolls, nothing abnormal with the, with the heart exam, nothing abnormal about the abdominal exam. And then our junior resident throws the probe on. At first, they focus on getting a good view of the heart.
0: I can show you the echo.
1: All
0: right. If you guys want to see the echo, you can see it in the show notes at mcrit.org. I'm not seeing much. Am I missing something?
2: No, not really. So this we're just seeing a massively dilated left atrium, decreased left ventricular ejection fraction, normal-sized RV, normal aortic root. And then I don't have the lungs, but there was B lines in all lung fields with small pleural effusions.
0: And can we throw some color on that mitral valve?
2: We did. There was mitral regurg. Okay. Significant or just. Yeah. Okay. We did look at his last echo in it. That was
0: known. Okay. Fair. Cool. 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 All right. How about the rest of the rush exam while we're here?
2: Yeah. Yep. Lungs, there was no pneumothorax, and there was no pericardial effusion abdomen. We specifically looked for free fluid because he had a known AAA, but there was none, and no femoral DVTs noticed initially. Okay.
0: All right. Or and, ever. But. And the IBC?
2: Was plethoric,
0: I think. Yeah, plethoric. All right. So that goes along with our bibasilar rails. And how far up did the pulmonary edema extend on that lung exam? all the way okay fine so he's filled up and he's hypotensive so all right what should immediately pop off in your head when you hear hypotension and pulmonary edema automatically now we're in the mindset of cardiogenic shock all right and so now we start going through the differential of cardiogenic shock And so is this patient, is it a valve issue? Is it a myocardial infarction? Is it some form of toxic cause of cardiogenic shock? The other thing we're now in the mindset of a, I, like my cardiogenic shock patients, intubated. We, we take out a lot of the metabolic work. We take out a lot of the issues that come from a patient who's tachypnic and hyperpnic and the metabolic load of that, and it's just a more controlled situation. And if he does need to go to the cath lab in a patient like this, it's not going to happen without a tube. So now already I'm in the mindset of this patient's getting intubated very shortly, but we need to stabilize him first because we got to resuscitate before we intubate. Interesting. Okay.
2: Sean, do you want to walk him through uh, the time 11 vital signs? And this was after we started a in norepinephrine infusion. At what rate? Because this is a key point.
1: It was... I think we started, oh, if I remember correctly, you started
0: 0.1. Okay. So 0.1 yeah. micrograms per kilogram per minute. Yeah. reasonable. Yeah. So that translating to people that don't use the more advanced system that we all should be on. That's between 7 and 10 micrograms which is fine. On a patient like this, in general, I'll start high. And seven and 10 is fine. It's not a big deal. It's not a problem. But when people start at two or four and then titrate every 10 minutes, patients die before you ever get them stabilized. And if you overshoot a little, you just pull back. So on this patient, I would just start them at 20, 15 or 20 and see. The other thing I'd be doing at a advanced resuscitation center is I'd have myself or one of the residents slip in an ultrasound guided radial arterial line right up right off the bat because it's gonna uh, help my intubation and it's going to help my ability to really track the minute-to-minute changes in that norepinephrine all right so with your seven or ten of norepi what's the
1: yeah this is probably like 11 minutes we order for norepi to be started one of our junior residents is getting ready to Throw in an A-line while the nurses are setting up for for the A-line system. And I think like within two, three minutes, we are seeing some improvement in blood pressure. I think at that point, it was like 96 by 69. MAP improved to 77. Heart rate is still like 120s. Breathing is still around like 55. Minus oxygen saturation. Now that we had some oxygen saturation, was still like in like upper 70s and 80s. All
0: right. Is anything bothering you at this point? Does anything disturb you? If so, what? Well, let's pause you there. Right off the bat, if the non-rebreather wasn't bringing that setup to well above 95%, preferably 100, this patient should be on non-invasive as a preparation for. Intubation. Yeah, our,
1: our respiratory um, team was working, and we were. Our plan was to start patient on some non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, and we were working on that.
0: Okay, so you can't be at 11 minutes and working on. And this is a, a real key point. Is and the expediency is what differentiates a proper functioning resuscitation, one that looks good on paper, because. It's very easy to say, and then we started non-invasive, and then we started we placed an a-line, and then we put the patient on norepi, and all those are the right words. But the differentiation between a well-wrought resuscitation and one not so much is: was the patient on non-invasive in less than two minutes from the second you see the sat less than uh, ninety? on this patient with Rawls up to their clavicles, you know what they need some form of increased mean airway pressure. And so on paper, okay, they'd started at 20 minutes. No, that's not a good resuscitation. Okay, we got the map up to 65. What point? At the 28 minute mark, that's not good. So on this patient, they should have non-invasive the second they hit the door. Now. Some places can get that done, some places can't. Some places have the machine in their recess base. Some places have to call respirators and show up for 30 minutes. That's fine. You work with what you got. And if you can't get a machine to the bedside in less than five minutes, which I think should be the marker, then you figure out alternative ways. Now, if your hospital has a little bit of money, then you buy the mask-based wall oxygen CPAP devices, and they work wonderfully, and they have ones out there that'll go up quite high now. They have ones that'll go to 20 centimeters of water, just powered by relatively low flow rates off the wall, and all of a sudden you have your non-invasive. If you can't do that, then you put a nasal cannula on the patient, you crank that up to 15, or 10 is fine too, and then you take a BVM with a PEEP valve, and you have one of your buddies hold it, tight mask seal over the patient's face. You dial the peep up to whatever you want. You don't need to bag them. You're just holding the mask over the face with their peep valve. And now you have non-invasive in less than four or five minutes from patient arrival. All right. So I assume at some point they got put on non-invasive or did they get intubated first?
1: Yeah, no, we are working on getting non-invasive. And I think the other struggle was we were like, I personally was still, like, we were trying to get um oxygen saturation on this patient his extremities are like um cool and we're not getting like a good plaid. so i was like is this even a real oxygen saturation well or okay we so just- understand
0: two things about that such a good point all right first of all we talked about why this is happening the patient has poor cardiac output relative to their needs and so that is an indication for more inotropy And whether that means you give continued push dose of epinephrine on top of your norepidrip or it means you start an epidrip, frankly, the latter is probably the better choice. What they're telling you is they're not getting enough perfusion to their fingers to get a good pulse ox. The other thing is if you have point of care labs, you get an ABG. Now, it's going to tell you that 70 is real. But what it might tell you is that it's actually lower. Because once you get to 70, those numbers really disappear for validity for the pulse oxes because they could be 50, they could be 60, they could be 70, and all reach 70. But this patient, if you can't get non-invasive, should just get tubed now. There's no reason to wait 11 minutes to get this patient's saturation stabilized. If they are having an MI right now, that saturation is doing them no good. Now, this brings up the obvious point that would have been done at the immediate arrival of this patient is what's their EKG? I can show you, but it's uh, non-diagnostic for an MI. It's okay, rapid AFib and uh, looks similar to prior all right fair and so you said he was 120 right yeah ish you know that's right on the border depending on this patient's baseline ejection fraction but in general that rate is low enough that it's not the cause of all of it was he was as high as 140s he was like fluctuating that's a little bit more of a pain in the butt but it, let's say he was 160 170 obviously you're either going to do a shock on this patient or some expedient to bring that rate because all of these poor cardiac output could be from that rapidity. Now, in general, they tolerate 120 easy. Uh, I wouldn't want to leave them there forever. 140 is getting up there, but it sounds his hypotension remains regardless of his rate fluctuating to those numbers. Is that correct?
2: When we resolved his hypotension with norepi, his rate was essentially not affected. Okay. So he's on non-invasive. We were able to get him saturating at the high 90s with CPAP of 8, with a slight decrease in his work of breathing. And then at this point, he's on norepinephrine and we have a chest x-ray. Do you want that? See that? Or... Just tell me. It is a diffuse pulmonary edema and it's officially read as fluid overload, cardiac enlargement, central pulmonary vascular congestion and pulmonary edema. Given these findings, infiltrates are not radiographically excluded.
0: All right, so two things about that. One is we saw an echo, I imagine pretty close to arrival, and the heart function on the LV was not horrible. That is a worthless thing to see when it is not indicative of poor cardiac output, because that patient was ostensibly like we don't know for sure what the cause of the patient's hypotension was. There a, when there, whether there was a component of vasodilation or was purely cardiac output related. And in that circumstance, you cannot use the echo to assess heart function until you see one with a map of 65. Because if the patient is vasodilated, any heart, no matter how crappy, will pump quite nicely, it'll be able to eject quite nicely because there's no afterload there's no resistance so ejection fraction is a load dependent measure you need to see it with the patient's vasodilatory state resolved so after this patient was on Norepi and the bp had improved i would re-echo the patient what you might find is now they have dismal heart function so that's one thing to consider the other thing is With or without the, I can't tell if there's infiltrates or not, this patient deserves broad spectrum antibiotics early in their course. If you don't have a clear cause for the hypotension, it's always sepsis until proven otherwise from the perspective of just give the fucking antibiotics. You look like a million bucks, you look prescient, you look brilliant, when, you know, 10 hours later, it turns out the patient did have a horrible raging infection. And if you were wrong, you've burnt one dose or one, you know, set of doses of Broad-spectrum antibiotics, no one cares. That's not where antibiotic resistance comes from. It comes from two weeks of broad-spectrum antibiotics that are unnecessary, not one dose. So hypotension without explanation, in general, you just give the damn antibiotics.
2: So we gave uh, vangenzocin up front, and we did re-echo the patient, and I would say that echo more clearly showed that his EF was approximately 30%, which was down from 51% two months prior.
0: Okay. Now would you be intubating this patient at this point based on what you know? Yes or no, make a decision. All right. So now we're at the point where let's tube. Them. Okay. Interesting. Cause we
2: did not do that. And, but they ultimately ended up doing it the next day. So we got him to a nice place when we, and we can get there in the story, but, Uh, You're saying that you would do it now?
0: Well, I'm saying I want this patient in the cath lab, and I can't send him up there. I think he probably does deserve a trip there. Now, if you told me he's looking a billion times better on non-invasive and some norepi, fine. The picture you were painting me in my head is I would have intubated this patient very soon into their course.
2: Yeah, I think we are we were ready to do that. And then the resuscitation, the initial resuscitation did make him look better. His vital signs at the 30 minute mark were was heart rate 130, respirations 48 still, but blood pressure was 122 over uh, eighty-three.
0: His saturation was ninety-six percent. And and that was still on the eight of peep? Yes. It's not horrible. Honestly. I think you get away with it, and obviously you did. This, it, there's some clear indications to still tube this guy. You, yeah. Most intensivists will not take this guy breathing 48 on non-invasive. That's not going to cut it. And he's sick enough that, in general, this pushes me usually over just airing on tubing him. Now, it's all going to depend on the nature of your medical center. Now, you folks are at the ultra special Janus General Connecticut. We'll go with that. You have probably good intensive care at coverage overnight. Many places, no one's in-house except for a mid-level or a second- or third-year internal medicine resident. If patients crump overnight, it's not how sick this patient is. Having them tubed, even if they're markedly better the next day and get extubated, is not the worst thing in the world.
1: I felt like when I'm like reassessing him at this 30, 35-minute um, mark, he's telling me that he's feeling much better. He looks better. His vital signs, as we discussed, sure his breathing is still like in the upper 40s. Otherwise it seemed like his heart rate is concerning me still, but his pressure is like perk up with um, the lever that we are giving, his oxygenation is okay. And that's why I felt I, I feel like in my limited years in residency, I haven't had intubator patient who's like telling me that he's feeling better, who's appearing better, who's trying to communicate to me through his through the mask. So I think that was my struggle. I was like, how why should we like take away his like like his breathing and just put him on mechanical ventilation.
0: All right, what do you think? Why would you intubate a patient like this potentially? Well, there's a lot of reasons why, but let's see if we can get some bolstering evidence here. What's the patient's lactate? What's his acid-base status? And is there any craziness in his labs? So his
2: lactate was 5.5. His I have a venous gas up front. His pH is 7.34 and CO2, 33. Obviously, O2 is Undetectable lead low on the VBG and his bicarb 17 with a base deficit of negative eight.
0: Base deficit of eight, I assume.
2: Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, trope I was only 0.1, and that, that ultimately stayed stable
0: during his time in the ED. All right. So that's the trope doesn't mean anything until we have a, another one a few hours later, but it's good that it's not high now. His lactate's high. Yeah. Now, This is one of the things to understand that's a differentiation between most EM people's perception of the indications for intubation and what an intensivist looks at. And so for EM in general, it's failure of airway, failure of oxygenation, failure of ventilation. The one that gets added in for intensivists is just metabolic milieu, right? A patient who is working hard and actually burning through a limited source of cardiac output will, deserve intubation even if they're telling you yeah i feel okay doc i feel much better and that's because you're just stealing stealing is the, the wrong word you're taking away metabolic load and so when you have a patient who is has a lactate of eight and they are have a low ph in general we'll intubate them just for that now this patient it's a mixed picture five is not horrible especially if we have time to wait and see if it resolves and the ph is actually not horrible Right, 7.34, they're not in the dire straits of acidosis, but you get a patient who's 7.05 and they're talking to you and they're, their CO2 normal, that should petrify you. That patient needs to be intubated. And what do I mean by that last point? What was the CO2 again, Barnacle?
1: It was 33, I think. Yeah, 33.
0: Yeah. So the patient, their pH is not that bad, so they're probably not that inappropriate in terms of their compensation. In fact, they're probably dialed in. But oftentimes, you'll see a circumstance that, unless you recognize, doesn't really ramify of how dangerous it is of a patient who has a low pH and they have a CO2 of 35. All right, stop and think, what is the problem with that scenario? Yeah, sure, they're not hypercapnic, but they're relatively hypercapnic. That patient should be blowing their CO2 down profoundly to compensate for that metabolic acidosis. And if they're not, it's just a absolute blinking sign telling you that this patient is going to crump in a few hours. Now, this patient from those numbers is not as bad as it could be. Okay, fine. You want to wait. But just be in mind that just a patient talking to you is not necessarily a, a indication to not intubate. And again, a respiratory rate of 48. In general, most places will not tolerate for non-invasive for any extended period of time. Fair.
2: So we got a little bit more history and of like the immediate preceding days. And then after we tell you that, we'd want to get your differential sort of just explicitly stated. Why don't you tell them the HPI?
1: Yeah, so from from reviewing his chart and reviewing what was reported to the other hospital and like getting more information from the patient himself, it sounded like the patient had one week ago, he was fine, had followed up with his cardiologist, was doing okay. And then a few days later, he had developed some coughing, some nighttime chills that would last like approximately 30 minutes, no documented fevers, had gone to an urgent care. And I think they probably got a chest x-ray and told him that he, they were concerned for bronchitis, starting him on some Z-Pak. And then uh, since his urgent care presentation, he just continued to get more dysneic, especially at rest and with exertion. And then that day when he presented to the ED, he was feeling a little um, lightheaded, a little dizzy, um, When presented to the ED with these complaints and also said that he was having a little bit of rhinorrhea, some sinus pain. Denied having any chest or abdominal pain, no nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. I think vaccinated for COVID, recent COVID test was one week ago, which was awesome. And his medical conditions included that he had history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, some peripheral arterial disease, CKD with, I think, baseline creatinine of 1.5. Previously in 2020, he had an abnormal stress test and he had some coronary artery disease history, but no stents ever played. And his medications included um, aspirin, eloquence, amlodipine, carbidolol, um, atorvastatin, and he had been compliant to all his medications. From the chart review, we we were able to see like a previous echo, which was not from like too long ago. It seemed like his EF at that point was 51%. There was moderate to severe MR, very severely dilated um, left atrium uh, in the setting of a permanent AFib.
2: So, why don't you lay out your differential for us and then I'll tell you what we picked and how we moved forward?
1: Sure. In the differential
0: for me is this sepsis because that's really high on the list is it myocarditis especially with this history of viral illness is this a valve issue and you know this patient needs a real echo and barnacle is pretty close to a real echo but if it was someone who's not as experienced beyond standard em modalities then uh, you probably want to get someone in sooner rather than later you don't want to wait until the next day on this patient it still could be some form of acute coronary syndrome we haven't ruled that out yet That
2: that's what's hitting me right yeah So we treated for pneumonia and sepsis, obviously. We thought PE, just based on the echo and the chest X-ray and his anticoagulation, that was very low. And talking to him, we took like a toxic ingestion off the list. He seemed like reliable. So we settled on, we thought this was decompensated heart failure with cardiogenic shock. And I, with his baseline MR and severely dilated LA, I felt like he had a heart that really couldn't take a joke and something has tipped him over. And since we had addressed his oxygenation and his BP with no change in the heart rate, I thought that this was now due to the AFib.
0: All right. You know, I'm going to renew my point made earlier. I really would have cardiology involved in this patient and see if I could push them to take him to the lab. And now the heart rate, sure, we we probably would have before this point started treating it just to get that number in that ideal range of 110. That's really where I like these patients to live. And you could do that with a couple of different agents. You could do that with AMIO, you could do that with Esmolol. You could do that with a slow load of diltiazem. You wouldn't want to push it on a patient like this, in my opinion, as well as nice because it disappears. But I would choose amiodarone if you did think the rate was contributory. And the way I would do it is I would give Q5 to 10-minute 150-milligram boluses until I got the heart rate where I wanted it and would never start a drip. The other alternative is to just give them 300 up front. And we probably underdose our AMIO, and that's probably why it's not as effective as it could be. What did you get?
2: <laughs> I'll let Cheyenne spoil the surprise.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we have our ED pharmacist at the bedside. We have sent out a call to cardiology, and obviously their juniors, like, seeing the like over overviewing the chart, discussing with the seniors. And at that point, we felt that we wanted to go ahead and start giving him some Esmolol. Main reason was because we can like, quickly turn it off with a short half-life after discussion with the pharmacy and the entire team. We decided let's not do a bolus. Let's just initiate with an esmolol infusion and see what happens next. Because at this point, really, the, the, yeah. the one abnormal vital sign that we are trying to work on is the heart rate. Let me pause you right
0: Okay, just take a second to gather your thoughts about everything that's going on right now. And then let's jump right back into it there from one section the one risk of lowering a heart rate in a patient like this is always in the case of pulmonary hypertension now you did mention because they drop dead because they're compensating for everything just with that heart rate in many cases and you never want to slow those patients down unless you're forced to and you did mention there was some pulmonary vasculature stuff i think that was really just indicative of a patient's cardiogenic uh pulmonary edema you weren't saying there was elevated right-sided heart pressures from what you saw on the echo is that correct Article.
2: Yeah, I, I didn't see anything okay. obvious on the So right that's side. just a
0: little stop point. Before you slow down a patient like this, always ask yourself, am I missing pulmonary hypertension? And if you are, don't slow them down. All right, so what happened with your Esmolol?
1: Yeah, so we started Esmolol, and we were seeing some good improvement in his heart rate. I think 30 minutes into the infusion, and we also gave magnesium before we gave him some Esmolol. 30 minutes into starting the infusion, his heart rates come down to 110, 107, when blood pressure is stable, Breathing has come down to like respiratory rate in like lower 30s, and he's oxygenating still well on 96% on non-invasive. Yeah. But at this point, cardiology has come down. They are at the bedside as well. It sounded like they were in agreement with us. We are both, as our number one running differential, we are concerned for an acutely decompensated heart failure. Which we were thinking could be a combination of his like previous uh, MR, which probably is worsened, his LV dysfunction, his suboptimal rate control due to his atrial fibrillation. They strongly felt that they wanted to replace esmolol and give amiodron, and their their reason was that because of like negative inotropy that you could get with amiodron, they were they they, they were preferring amiodron, and they were comfortable taking it to TCU. So at that point, we were like. If they are taking over the kid, then it's probably usable that we can't switch to anything. Honestly,
0: doesn't matter. But the, the thing to understand is the way amiodarone works on a supraventricular tachycardia of any sort is by negative inotropic response, in essence, because it's a combination of a beta blocker and a calcium channel blocker. That being said, to their point, it probably is the most cardiac stable of the uh, choices for rate control in, for instance, an in atrial fibrillation patient. So like I said, I probably would have preferred AMIO as well. The nice thing about the Esmol is you can turn it off and there's no downside to starting them on Esmol and then having it switched out to AMIO. So it's not a bad choice by any stretch of the imagination. There's no shame in starting Esmol so that you could turn it off and then switching to a more long-standing agent like the AMIO later on. That's a perfectly fine progression. Yeah. And I let's hear the case progression.
2: One other thing is we talked about going to the cath lab and with cardiology, like he wasn't having ACS type symptoms. The trope was stable. They decided to defer that. And, and I thought that was reasonable at that point.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you have a better patient than when he arrived. Yeah. Oh, so this is about two hours into
2: the case. He was formally admitted to the CCU. His COVID came back negative. His lactate cleared. And then the next 17 hours, he was stable on CPAP, amiodarone, and was successfully diuresed several liters overnight. Norepi came off at the four-hour mark. And he was transferred to CCU with the presumed diagnosis of heart failure with his a formal echo the next day showing a left ventricular EF of 32% down from the 51% two months prior. But then interestingly, Cheyenne, do you want to tell them what everything ended up being?
1: Yeah, so they they got a full respiratory panel on him. It turned out that he was positive for influenza. His breathing, I, I think after he got moved um, to the cardiac ICU, they were concerned for his breathing, his mental status, him tiring out. So he was intubated. And then, because at that point, the main, the running diagnosis had become influenza, and the cardiology was less concerned about like cardiac, cardiogenic shock. He was moved to the medical ICU. Remain intubated, remain off of At Last I checked, he's still in the hospital. He is now extubated. He is on the floor. He's doing okay off pressures And cardiology is still continuing to follow up.
0: All right. So it turned out to be sepsis after all, as it always is. Sepsis <laughs> yeah. is the great masquerader.
1: Hey, folks, I just want to jump in and
0: say there's been some really severe Uh, viral infections going on in the category that we would normally consider fairly benign, like life-threatening parainfluenza and other uh, respiratory panel viruses that were like, you know, normally blowing off like the common cold have been really getting people sick lately. So this is probably a case of that. I'm not sure why it is. Maybe some of the ID listeners could weigh in, but I just wanted to put that out there. All right. This was a fantastic case. All right. This has been a fantastic first shadow boxing. I can't thank you two enough. Awesome. Thank you, Scott. Thank
1: you. All right,
0: there you go. That wraps Shadow Boxing Episode 1. I'm super curious to hear what you think about this. Any ideas for improvements? Did it piss you off? Did you find the shadow sound too creepy? Etc. If you're a resident and you have a case you want to present, come on over to mcrit.org slash contact and uh, let us know. Uh, I, I think it'll be super fun to get a whole you know, breadth of uh, various places, maybe across the world, and uh, have some great cases to discuss. And so uh, please let me know. And this has been Scott Weingart for the MCRIP Podcast saying bye-bye and Happy New Year.